I'm Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Chasing Justice. You know, it's an interesting thought. I, I, I had a opportunity to sit in with the great Malcolm Out Loud recently, and we talked about an article I have up on the platform. I'm going to try and put more articles up this year. I have, I have a lot of things that I really want to write about. But in the course of that conversation, one of the things that came up was the concept of leadership and different kinds of leadership and how people function as a leader, what the responsibilities are of a leader, and it all stemmed from part of the article that I wrote uh, about the potential for a, a real American revolution. And we talked about that at length. And you can find that on the platform. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty good hour of radio, actually, I think. But the point was, in the course of that conversation, we did talk about my type of leadership that I believe in and that I've used, of course, of course all of my adult career life, and that is servant leadership. So when you think about servant leadership, and I believe there, there are several different sources of the idea of servant leadership. I think Robert Greenleaf, a business, a business guy back in the 70s, uh, he came up with the, with the business concept of servant leadership, which basically says, you know, the higher you go in any organization, the more you owe those people who are below you, you know, the people you're, you're in, in charge of, uh, the people who work for you, the people at lower ranks in your organization, whatever they are. It's not about the higher you go, the more they do for you. It's really about the responsibility as the leader to do what those people need so that they can grow and they can be great, and they can do different kinds of things to make themselves better at what they do, better people, which makes for a better organization, right? So servant leadership is, when I first heard about it, and I got, I got to tell you, I, I discussed it in, at length because I teach a course uh, for law enforcement, for business, for everybody on, on leadership. You know, leadership is an important topic everywhere. We have a, a lack of leadership in many areas uh, of our daily life now. Uh, we used to have leaders that really uh, stood out because they were there to do good. We had leaders who really cared about uh, the future and the organization, whatever organization they were in. And uh, we still do today. There are still people like that. I'm Hopefully I'm one of them. I try to do the right thing. But we also know that we, we do suffer from poor leadership. So in the course of my career, uh, over the course of 30 years in law enforcement, I worked for some very, very good leaders, people that really wanted to make everybody be as best, be as good as they could be at their at their different positions, people that fostered the idea that you can be more, you can be better, you can learn. They basically set the bar pretty high and expected you to, to reach it. And that's an interesting concept as well. So the idea of this servant leadership, when I think back, I think back to my early years in law enforcement, when you're a brand new cop in the agency I was in, uh, you go to your briefing in the morning and they tell you, you know, watch out for Bob Jones is wanted and ABC 123 license plates, a stolen car, you know, all points bulletin, see if you can find the cars, that kind of thing. And I remember 
I, I finished my first or second briefing, and I was very excited. You know, I had completed the academy. I did really well in the academy. I scored high intellectually on all that stuff. I did all the physical things. I was ready to go out and enforce the law, you know, to help my community and, and make, make people safe and protect the innocent. All those good things that most law enforcement officers, no matter where they serve, uh, come into the job with that kind of a belief that they're going to go out and they're going to help society and make society better. And, and that was what I felt. So there I am in my, my clean, brand new uniform, my, uh, all my, uh, my badge, shiny badge, my gun. I'm ready to go. And the briefing is over. And I'm, I'm excited to get out on the road and go out and start putting all of this conceptual law enforcement stuff into action to go out and see the world. And the sergeant says to me, hey, rookie, uh, you know, uh, go, go down the hallway to the captain, the chief, the deputy chief and everybody and, uh, you know, get their breakfast order and then go pick it up. And I said, what? What do you mean pick up a breakfast? You, you realize you're looking, I'm a police officer, right? I'm not a, I'm not a, a food guy. I'm not an errand guy. I'm a, I'm a policeman. I'm going out in the street to do police work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go down and take the breakfast order. Uh, you're the rookie, so go down there and do that. And I had not seen this before. This was my first experience with this because I was brand new to the department. You know, you go to the academy, then you go to your apartment, your department. So I go down the hallway and I knock on the captain's door. And I said, uh, hey, Cap, they told me to come down here and get a breakfast order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want a, a pork roll, egg and cheese sandwich on a hard roll. Not too much ketchup and a, and a coffee, light and sweet. And I said, okay, well, all right. So I wrote that down. And I said, uh, do you pay me now or they, do they bill us or how do they do? Because I didn't know how the restaurant did it. He's like, no, no, just go pick it up and I'll pay you when you get back. I said, okay. So then I went to the deputy chief, same thing. Went to the chief's office, another captain's office, a lieutenant's office, and they all gave me their breakfast order. So I went to the Sarge. I said, Sarge, I, I, there's 25 things here on this list. He goes, yeah, call it in to the diner, and when you get there, uh, it'll be ready. I said, well, of all these people that ordered stuff, I got like six bucks out of people. He goes, yeah, yeah, just pay for it. Just pay for it. When you come back, they'll pay you, you know, when you have the bill so they can see exactly what it cost. I said, okay, you realize like I'm a rookie, brand new officer. I don't have all that kind of cash flowing out of my pockets. He goes, yeah, yeah, well, you have enough to cover it. It's probably, probably going to be like $40. So I had $40. So I went to the diner and it was humiliating to walk in there and, and pick up a breakfast order and pay it. And, you know, the citizens were very nice. Oh, good morning, officer. How are you? You know, that was really nice. And I guess they were used to that. People at the diner, hey, we have your order right, right here, officer. Here it is, thirty-eight fifty. I pay it, and they gave me the change. I bring it back to headquarters. I hand out all the breakfast stuff. And I said, uh, hey, Cap, uh, yours is uh, $5.40. Oh, you know what? I don't have any change on me. I'll, I'll get that to you tomorrow. Well, I got that from a lot of them. You know, I, some of them paid. Some of them didn't. Matter of fact, the, the one captain uh, who's long retired and deceased now, uh, not a bad man, but he still owes me that $5.50. He never paid it. But my point was I remember feeling humiliated that I had to go pick up a breakfast order when my, my job was law enforcement officer. I was a police officer, a cop. I was going to go out in the street, fight drug dealers, rapists, bad people. And here I am picking up a breakfast. Well, I never forgot that. I never forgot that feeling. And I watched it happen to every rookie that came into that PD. Uh, as they came in, they'd pick up breakfast orders and, and all kinds of, you know, oh, go get the chief's uh, dry cleaning and bring that to headquarters for him. It's all paid for. You just got to pick it up and bring it in. And I saw you know, this happening. And, and 
it, it, I don't I don't know exactly how to explain it other than it was humiliating. It felt stupid. It wasn't I shouldn't be doing this. The other cops shouldn't be doing this. And the course of our lives, many of us will will say something when we're involved with something to say, you know, if I'm ever in charge, I'm never going to do that. And I know a lot of people say that, but this stuck in my craw and I remembered it. Now, many years later, uh, I was in the detective bureau for many, many years. Uh, when I finally got promoted, I was promoted in the detective bureau as a sergeant. I got to run the bureau because uh, our, our lieutenant who was in charge of the detective bureau was promoted to captain. Out he went. So I ran it for about a year or so until the next lieutenant's position came up. Uh, when I was promoted to lieutenant, uh, I was transferred back to the patrol division as the co-commander of the patrol division. And I get out there and I'm trying to, you know, get my footing. Again, I hadn't been in patrol for 13, 14 years. I had been in the detective bureau, which is a completely different lifestyle, different kind of responsibilities. And now I'm out with the men and women who were in uniform out in the street, you know, doing the work that we see every day. And I go to a briefing and the Sarge is given his briefing. And when he gets done, he's, he looks at this, this young rookie officer, says, uh, hey, Johnson, uh, you know, uh, see what the lieutenant wants and go around the building and get the breakfast order. And I said, excuse me, uh, Sarge, are, we still do that? I mean, I left 14. You're still doing that? Now, I kind of knew that they were still doing it. I had seen the packages come and go for breakfast. And, and he goes, yeah, 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 that's, we still do that. What do you want? Let him know. He'll pick it up. I said, uh, you know, don't do that. Johnson, don't, you're not going to make a breakfast pickup today. And the sorry says, uh, how come? I said, well, I never forgot what it felt like. It felt embarrassing. It felt humiliating. It's not a police officer's job to do that. I said, if the captain wants a cup of coffee, the captain can either stop at 7-Eleven on his way to work and pick it up, or the captain can go to the coffee pot we have in the back and drink there. And if they want a bacon and egg sandwich, they can make it at home, or they can, you know, stop at the restaurant on their way and pick their own breakfast up. I said, on our squads, we are no longer doing that. And the sergeant said, uh, okay, um, do you want to tell the captain or should I? I said, no, I'll go down and I'll talk to, to everybody. I'll let them know. Now, we had a couple of lieutenants running different squads. I said, on our squads, we're not doing that anymore. So I went down to the captain, who was a very reasonable guy. I worked with him for many years. I said, listen, it, you're, you're, you're doing this, having these, these young people go pick up breakfast still? He goes, well, it's the way we've always done it. I said, Cap. Don't you think that's wrong that we shouldn't have these cops doing that? That, you know, with all, with all due respect, you could go in the back and get a cup of coffee. Why does this cop have to pick up your coffee and put sugar and milk in it and stir it all up for you? And he was a good man. And he looked down and he looked back at me and he started smiling. And he goes, you know, you're right. I remember you complaining about this. Um, all right, I'll make sure, I'll make sure that the uh, dep deputy chief and the chief know we should. I agree. We shouldn't be doing that anymore. And they stopped doing it. And I, I said, you know, that's a, that's a little battle, but that was a leadership task. You know, I had to take on people higher rank than me and make a decision that could have been problematic for my career. They could have slapped me down. The captain, deputy chief, the chief, absolutely not. Matter of fact, you're going to go make the pickup now. They could have done that, but they didn't. They all kind of saw the reason of what I was saying. I made my case, you know, I stood my ground for my people. Now, that's a very, very simple thing that I had to do, but it was one of the first lessons actually that I experienced of leadership, of trying to figure out what could I do for my people to make their world better for them. You know, they, I could have easily said, hey, get me a, a pork roll, egg and cheese sandwich with ketchup on it. And that would have been a nice little breakfast for me to have sitting in my office doing what I did. But I remembered what it felt like 
and I didn't like it, and I had an opportunity now to change it. That's that's the key of leadership when you have a chance to change things, and hopefully for the better. Everybody wants to be promoted or move forward in their organization because they want to do. They have ideas. You know, they want to make things better. Well, that was only the first step uh, in many of the things that I did in my agency. Most of them very quietly. Uh, I took on the administration on quite a few issues that I didn't see as good or or good for the men and women of the agency. And it it was costly to me. I can be honest about that. It, It was costly to me in the position that once I was promoted to the rank of lieutenant, I had an opportunity, obviously, to be captain, deputy chief, chief, all that. But I had to make a, a career choice and a life choice. And this is where servant leadership really came into focus for me. If I had followed along with the administrative plan and how they dealt with the people under their command, some of them were good. Most of them were not good. Most of them were very self-centered that, hey, I'm the chief. I'm the deputy chief. I'm the captain. Uh, you'll do what I say uh, for my benefit. And I, I just couldn't see that. It, it bothered me to watch that happen. So a lot of the battles that I had to choose were between my ambition to enhance my career and get promoted more, move up the ladder further, or do what was right by the men and women in my command, the people who were looking to me for leadership, for guidance, uh, for advice, for protection from things that weren't good, because, you know, below the ranks, blanks below me didn't have a lot to say. Uh, patrolmen and patrol officers couldn't do anything about policy. The sergeants couldn't do anything. As a lieutenant, though, I was invited into the meetings where we talked about policy. We talked about procedure. We talked about discipline. Uh, a lieutenant in our agency was an executive officer. So I got to go to those ComStat meetings where we talked about all these things. And it was there that, as they say, the proverbial rubber meets the road. Uh, we had at that point a a very a very bad chief, a chief who was not very good, uh, was not a was not a people person, was a bully, was not someone who uh, cared about other people other than himself, uh, would step over people, climb over people all the time, and that was problematic. Um, and I had to make a choice: my career or my people. And I chose my people. Uh, ultimately, I chose my people, and I remember. The, the chief telling me, well, you know, uh, he came into my office and out of a scene right out of uh, It's a Wonderful Life, he offered me great benefits if I would just follow along with him and I chose not to. So when I had to make a choice and I chose my people instead of the chief, it was really choosing career and something for me as opposed to something for my people. So when I reference it was like a scene out of the wonderful movie Uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And if you've ever seen it, you know what a tremendous movie it is. And if you younger people out there that are listening, go see that movie. Uh, It means more and more to you the older you get in life. And I don't mean old like me. I remember my son Joe when he hit his 30s and had his first child. He said, you know, I never realized how important that movie was when I was a kid. But it really makes a lot of sense now. And it does. It's amazing. But the scene I'm referring to... George Bailey at the time was a good, decent guy, and he had to make a choice between taking care of his people, the people he loaned money to in the community, the people who didn't have a lot of money, and he made loans on handshakes and tried to take care of them. Uh, he, he was always trying to protect them from Mr. Potter. And at some point, 
Mr. Potter calls George into his office and offers him an amazing deal. Basically, he wants to take over his, his building and loan and, and have get George out of the way so that Potter can rule the roost and basically charge what he wants instead of, you know, helping people. He, he, he could charge him usury rates and hurt them. You know, that's the basis of the story. At the time, George was probably making uh, what you would say would be $3,000 a year at the time. Doesn't seem like a lot of money, but that's pretty much the, the salary at that time in, in life. And Mr. Potter was offering him $20,000 a year plus expenses, trips to New York, trips to Europe, if he would just sign on and come with him. And to seal that deal, George was very excited by this. This was a great move forward. I mean, think about quadrupling 10 times your salary, how you could provide for your family, how you could get ahead. Very ambitious. And it would be a wonderful thing if you could do that. And all he had to do was shake Mr. Potter's hand to make the agreement. And if you watch the movie, the scene is, is very, very pertinent to my life story. As George is excited to do this and he reaches over to shake Potter's hand, he realizes he can't because shaking that hand is shaking hands with the devil. You're selling your soul for something else. And he had to make a choice, the people he cared for or himself. And before he shook his hand, he pulled his hand away and he says he can't do it. And he walks out and he doesn't do it. So I experienced basically the exact same thing, kind of thing. The chief and I weren't getting along very well because I was standing up for my people professionally. I never spoke down to him. I never used nasty language. I never raised my voice. I respected his rank. And in these meetings with all the, you know, the captains and the lieutenants and the deputy chiefs, I would raise my hand and respectfully disagree with something he was going to do or wanted to do to the men or women of the agency. And that led to a lot of conflict. He didn't like being uh, questioned, although he told everybody, I don't want yes men. I don't want yes women. I want people that are going to tell me the truth and give me guidance and help me make decisions, which was all good until somebody actually raised their hand and wanted to say something that didn't agree with him. Then he didn't like it. So that's the position we were in. And then this one day he saunters down into my office and he says, hey, I got to talk to you for a minute about your career. I said, okay, chief, what's that? He says, I can't imagine you leaving here as less than a captain or deputy chief, maybe even chief. You know, you're a smart guy. You're good at what you do. But there's going to be some things that you're going to have to do to make that happen. And I said, what's that? Now I'm thinking he, maybe he's giving me some guidance on career. You know, he made it to chief, so maybe he's going to give me some guidance. And he says, I need you to be loyal. I need you to be loyal to me and to what I want to do. And, uh, you know, every, every time something happens in these meetings, you're raising your hand and you're, you're worried about this officer or how come I'm doing this to that officer instead of going along with what I want to do. I'm in charge of this agency and I expect everyone to be loyal to me and to my decisions. And he says, I can't imagine you leaving here less than a captain, deputy chief, maybe even chief. He goes, so do you understand what I'm saying? And I did. And there was the crossroad. There was my crossroad. There was my ambition. Do I move forward? All I had to do was agree and toe the line. Or do I abandon all the men and women in my command who definitely needed an advocate? They definitely needed someone in the rank system that could speak for them, that could advocate for them, that could help them, uh, help them through discipline when they deserved it, help them through 
changes that they had to make so they could do well in their career. And he sticks his hand out, this chief, to shake my hand. He goes, so, do we have an understanding? And I was trying to decide, do I, do I want to be chief? Do I want to be deputy chief? Do I want to rise to the rank of captain? I did, very much so, for a couple of reasons. One, it would be great to advance in your career. Who wouldn't want to go to the top? Number two, I thought, boy, I could really make a difference in those places compared to what I'm doing now. So I thought it'd be a great idea. And I stood up and I felt just like George Bailey. I actually saw myself in that office and he stuck his hand out and I couldn't shake it. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't. I realized I would be, I would be hurting the men and women under me. And that's what he was trying to do. Console, console his power uh, so that he had no, no one speaking against him. He could do what he wanted to do. And I'm not saying he was an evil person. He just wasn't a good leader. He, he didn't worry about what was good for the organization, the men or women. He worries about what was good for him. Uh, and matter of fact, he used to say things like, um, you, uh, I fired or demoted more cops in two years than they've done here in 30 years. That's how you lead. And that's not how you lead. That's how you intimidate. But I remember standing there and seeing that hand sticking out. And I couldn't do it. I said, Chief, I can't agree to that. I can't agree to just give you blind loyalty. I said, I'm loyal to the office of chief, but I can't give blind loyalty if policies come out that I think are detrimental to the agency or detrimental to the men and women of this agency. I have to be able to speak up and let you know. I said, I'm not disrespectful. I don't say these things in public. I say them to you. I say them to you in the meetings where, we're, you know, you said you didn't want yes men and yes women. Well, I'm trying to uphold that. And by me agreeing to blind loyalty, I wouldn't be able to do that. And I don't think that's right, and I can't do it. Well, he was flabbergasted. It was funny. I guess if you could, if you could be a fly on the wall looking at the two of us, uh, he was flabbergasted that I would turn down his offer to make my career greater. And you would see me having realized I had just crossed a great divide. I had pretty much uh, made a career decision to limit my career to the rank of lieutenant, that he would do everything in his power while he was there to prevent me from rising any higher because I did not shake that hand. I did not make that deal with the devil. And it, it, it was disconcerting. It was to realize, you know, personally that you made a decision like that. But when he left the room and you know, I closed the door and I sat at my desk and I tried to work my way through this and say, okay, what did you just do? You just sabotaged your own career. And then a little voice in my head said, did you sabotage your career? Or did you live up to principles that you believe in? Are you doing things to protect the men and women in your agency, make your agency great, to provide a great service to the community that you serve? And it was clear that that's, that's what I had done. That was the decision I made, though it was personally detrimental to my ambition, my desire to rise higher up in the ranks. Over the course of the rest of my career, I dealt with that because of course there were, a couple years later he retired, and there was uh, two captain positions and a chief's position open. And uh, I was in the running. I think I was a very, very good candidate. But again, I knew all along the way that he would sabotage the whole process for me and anybody else uh, other than his chosen people. Because there were people that did shake his hand, that did follow in his footsteps, that did uh, lead the way he did through intimidation. And I knew that the, none of those people 
I mean, those people probably would get ahead, and lo and behold, they did. They were uh, raised to the to the ranks of captain and chief. It, it, it is what it is. And I retired out of my career a couple years later as a lieutenant, but I made sure that I stuck up for my people. So servant leadership is the is the form of, of leadership that I have chosen. And, and this is really the reason. This is my own life example. Now, it's interesting. Uh, during the course of that time, we did have a couple of officers who were falling behind. They were not meeting standards. They were not keeping up with all the other officers as far as uh, output of work, quality of work, etc. And this chief decided he was going to fire them. Outright just fire them. And I said, well, in the meeting, of course, I raised my hand. Well, chief, uh, I understand these officers have deficits, they're falling behind, but what have we done to help them? What have we done to help them overcome those deficits? And you could see he was getting more and more angry as I was bringing up these points. And the other, the other people in the room were very concerned. They, they were, you know, he, he intimidated everyone, he bullied them. And I think that was where he found his strength. And he says, oh, really? Well, I'll tell you what, you care about them so much, you have one year to bring these people up to standards, and if they don't, I'm firing them, and then it's on you. And then, of course, I got his goat because, you know, he, in public, he liked to bluster like that. And I said, well, Chief, thank you very much for your confidence in me. I appreciate it. I will do my level best to make sure that these officers uh, reach a, an acceptable level of performance. And, well, you do that. Okay, and that was the end of it. I then had to set out on a task of figuring out how to help these two officers. And I created an employee development plan that requires buy-in from them. You know, I, I couldn't do the work for them. I couldn't make them better. They had to understand what was at stake. And then I created a program that would allow them to uh, enhance their performance, to, to do better, to do what everyone else was doing, to meet the standards of the agency. And within, within the year, uh, it was difficult. It was a lot of work, as it is for any leader. You know, there's, along the way, you, you, you're doing so many extra tasks to make this happen, that I had to question it a few times, you know, geez, I asked for this, right? And then, you know, but what's my purpose? My purpose was to help these officers to be the best that they could possibly be and to save their jobs. Now they had to do the work, but I set up the program and I held them to account. I made sure that they continued to do it. I stayed on it to make sure that it worked out for them. And it did. Uh, at the end of the year, both of them met the standards of the agency. Now the truth is, Neither one of them will ever be a, a sergeant. Neither one of them will ever be a detective or a traffic specialist. They will be patrol officers for the balance of their career. But they will provide a good service to their community. They maintain their job. They'll get their pension. They could take care of their family. I felt I had done the right thing for these officers. And upon my retirement, you know, you have a nice retirement party and people come out and they all know that, you know, I like gin and tonics. You know, so I, how many bottles of gin and tonics did I get that night? It was really wonderful. But one, one young man, one of the young men whose job was saved, gave me a, a little box with a watch in it. And it was, it was not very nice, very nice gesture for him to give him that. What was more important is what was said on the outside of the box, the inscription. It said, Lieutenant Pangaro, thank you for your years of service and for the mentoring you did of this entire department. We'll never forget it. Now, to me, that's the greatest accolade that I ever received uh, in law enforcement. I got a lot of awards and a lot of things for crimes, solving crimes, and this and that. Helping another person, helping them achieve greatness, I thought was absolutely amazing, and it was very, very satisfying. 
So that's, that's the essence of what servant leadership is. So if you're trying to figure out what kind of leader you could be, look into servant leadership. It is very, very satisfying, and it's, it's different, I think. It helps every organization. Okay, we'll be back in a minute with more Chasing Justice. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like Freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be, with a company that shares your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Nurses Out Loud Talk Radio want to introduce you to ASEA Redox Cell Signaling Molecules. It is more than just a wonderful natural product. Redox molecules are native to the human body. Redox molecules enable your body to turn on its inner doctor so your body can heal itself the way it did naturally when you were young. Check out americaoutloud.shop, look for ASEA Cell Signaling Molecules Liquid Supplement, and check out Nurse Michelle's recent favorite ASEA product, Renew 28 Revitalizing Redox Gel, because this gel helped get me through some significant muscular pain during my healing process following a recent canoeing accident when I broke my hip. Give it a try for your aches and pains and let Nurses Out Loud hear how your health has improved. Well, the out loud truth was the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.news was an idea, a movement, a place where folks would feel comfortable speaking the truth without being censored or canceled. The First Amendment is alive and well. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. All right, everybody, welcome back. Are you healthy? Are you feeling healthy? Are you feeling down? Are you feeling tired? Are you not sleeping well? Are you having trouble recalling information? Well, Lieutenant Joe can help you. One of the ways I can help you is to tell you, take a look at the Healthy Cell products. They are all over this network. Uh, I use them myself. I use the uh, Immune Boost, which has kept me healthy uh, unbelievably for the last couple of years. It's really a great product. Uh, and my cousin has been using the uh, Sleep 
the REM sleep product, and he's a guy that had all kinds of sleep and trouble, and he doesn't anymore. Every time he gets low on the product, he orders more, and it's helped him. And Focus Factor. Uh, we have The guys in the neighborhood have been taking that, and we haven't had them on in a while. Uh, there's been some issues, health issues and whatnot with everybody. So once we get them back on, what they're telling me is that they are feeling better and they're more able to collect their thoughts and, and speak clearly and think clearly. So all this stuff is good. So I'm going to tell you, go take a look. The Healthy Cell products, they're on the network. They're excellent. And so in the beginning of our uh, episode this week, we talked about servant leadership and how important I think servant leadership is and, and leadership in, in every organization. Think of anything you belong to. There's usually a leadership team, whether it's your church, a business, a hobby group, uh, anything. If the leaders are not good, if the leaders don't understand the mission, if they don't understand how to take care of their people, there's lots of problems. So leadership is important. If you're in a leadership position, do what's right. That's the message I wanted to get through. Now, let's talk about some topical things. Let's talk about some exciting topical things. Uh, first of all, uh, I do want to do a shout out to my father-in-law, Ted. Ted is always listening, not only to Chasing Justice, but he listens to the entire network all the time. He likes all the different hosts, and every day he's telling me uh, how much he enjoyed this show and that show, and I think that's great. So, Ted, thanks for being our number one listener out there. I do appreciate it. For people who are new to Chasing Justice here, you'll see that I, the purpose of Chasing Justice is to do just that. But justice, not just in the law enforcement sense. Though my background is law enforcement, my life experience is everything else. And what I try and do is look for justice in, in every situation. Uh, lack of justice, need for justice, or actually justice. So when we look at current events, I call them my pages of outrages here. Things that I take note of, correlate a thought about, and then and jump out there. So I know there's a new feature on the uh a platform now where you can ask questions. You can jump in with comments. I welcome that. All right. The whole idea of what I try and do here is to get us to think, right? I'm not going to tell you what to think. I tell you what I think. I tell you what I believe. I take you on a trip with me as I work my way through these things sometimes in an effort to give you information so that you can think and work through it and come up with your own opinions, your own thoughts on things so that you can feel you understand all these different topics, and then you can help other people to understand. That's the idea. Is we all should be asking questions and thinking. And that's what we do here on Chasing Justice with Lieutenant Joe. Right? So a couple of things I see in the news. In Clark County, Nevada, there's a judge there. Let me get her name right. Mary Kay Holtus. I think that's her name. Holtus. Mary Kay Holtus is a judge there, and she is sentencing a guy named, and I'm going to try and pronounce it right because it's, it's a name. It's not a classic name. I don't understand it. The first name is Diobra, D-E-O-B-R-A, Diobra, unless it was spelled incorrectly in the article, reader. And he was being sentenced or being bail set or bail denied. They weren't clear in the article, but he's in front of this judge. And apparently at some point uh, he gets upset and he dives over the judge's desk. You know, the big desk where the judge sits behind, dives over the desk, tackles the judge down, uh, and all the court officers come and they're jumping in trying to protect the judge and fight with this guy. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, it didn't look like he was handcuffed. There's a video out there. You can go find the video. Did not look like he was handcuffed. And I don't know why he wouldn't have been handcuffed. Uh, you know, what we try and do is when people are being sentenced, he would be handcuffed. So maybe it was for a bail hearing or something. Um, 
you don't want people to look like they're prisoners if they're not convicted, right? So they give them more freedom. But, uh, you know, obviously this was not a good idea because this guy went running and the judge was injured. A secure, one of the security personnel in the room was injured. And now this guy's going to face more charges. And I think, according to the article, he was in front of the judge for an aggravated assault or some kind of an assault charge. So you think we'd learn our lesson. When people tell us what they're all about, we should listen. Okay? So that's, that's in the justice world. It's, it's, it's crazy. We see that in Perry, Iowa, there's a reported school shooting. Now, we're just all coming back from this big break we were on. Uh, details are developing. And we'll find out all about it as we go forward. I hope uh, there's not a lot of injuries. Maybe it was just uh, one guy with a gun threatening somebody. Hopefully, it's not going to turn into a parkland type of thing where we find that there's a tragedy right at the beginning of the year. So let's, we're going to pay attention to that as we go forward. You know, I, I teach and train about safety and security. I teach and train schools, businesses, religious facilities, everybody out there, any place people gather, how to be safe and secure. I conduct assessments on buildings and facilities to tell you where security gaps are. And when you see some of these things, you know, I wonder, I wonder what they had in place. Because I do travel all across the country providing this service. And I find some schools and universities are completely on top of it. They got the right technology, the right equipment. They are uh, training their staff properly. They do drills of value. They do good lockdown drills. They do all kinds of de-escalation training. And then I find other places that still do nothing. And I think the statistic is that 69% of businesses do little to nothing in the way of workplace violence, uh, active shooter response training. Now, I know a lot of people, I've talked to people in corporate world, a lot of them say, well, we watch a video. It's like an hour and a half video, and it's pretty good. It tells you what to do with an active shooter. Well, I recently did a big assessment for a major uh, media outlet. They had a brand new facility. Uh, they brought me in and asked me to take a look at their brand new facility and, and see what they do and look at their policies and procedures. And the facility itself was very, very nice. They had some misplaced security barricades. They put them in the wrong area. So I tried to help them with that. When it came to the training, I did ask, you know, what do you do for training? And they said, well, we watched the video and the video is pretty good. And I said, okay, well, I watched the video. I said, can I see it? I want to see this video. And it wasn't bad, but it wasn't complete. There wasn't a total package of what people need to know to be safe and secure and how to respond in their workplace. So think about that. Do they do that at your place? Do they do that at your kid's school? Because the springtime, for whatever reason, uh, as we move towards spring, the springtime seems to be a time when there's more of these kind of events. Uh, at least it seems that way, right? Uh, so make sure your schools, your businesses, your religious facilities are all safe and secure. And like I said, the new platform allows you to ask questions. If you have questions, don't hesitate to ask me. I'll give you information. I'll connect you up with how to, how to make your places safer because we got to all do that as we go forward. We can't forget it and uh, think like, oh, it's all over now because it's certainly not especially now with the fear of lone wolf terrorists, groups of people who are acting out. We see this all over now, right? There was a guy the other day drove a car full of explosives, gasoline and stuff, and it's a purposeful terror attack, though we haven't heard more about it for political reasons, I think. I think uh, the administration, the Biden administration, does not want to highlight the fact that uh, who these people are. It could, could be an American who just went wacky. Uh, could be a radicalized guy. Could be a guy just with a head problem. But the fact when they won't tell you the names of the people or they won't tell you, their, you know, if they left messaging or anything, it's because they're trying to hide something from you. 
and that's just the reality. Uh, in law enforcement, we often hold back on details while we're conducting an investigation. And the reason that you do that is you, if you give out too much information, you do get a lot of people, believe it or not, who will come forward and admit that they did things when they did not. You know, they just got this problem. They want to be involved with things. So we only give out certain details. Then when you get a real suspect and you go over it with them, if they're cooperative, they will know details that only the person who did it knows. So that's why you don't get a ton of information. The other thing, like this uh, Perry, Iowa shooting, the information we usually get in the beginning is usually wrong, right? It was nine shooters. It was this. It was that. 28 people killed. And it turns out it wasn't that at all. So we have to let let time go a little bit so we can understand exactly what happened here and, and who did what. But these are the things you need to be concerned about with your kid's school, the places that you work, your food stores. How many food stores have we seen attacked, right? Do they have security in place? So everyone has to be safe and secure going forward. All right, so Clark County, we talked about that. Let me take that off my page of outrage. Uh, I hope the judge and the officer are okay, and I hope they charge the criminal uh, with all those attacks and he serves the time learn a lesson don't attack the judge don't attack the law enforcement be a good person to everybody no matter who you are don't break the law do the right thing all right pretty simple let's talk about um i think her name is claudine gay i think it's the first name claudine gay dr gay she is the president of harvard and she just resigned her position what she says under pressure now, the reason she resigned under pressure, uh, her, uh, I think Penn State's president, and then also MIT's president, three different people who were asked about the pro-Palestinian anti-Israeli demonstrations on their college campuses. Did they think that the students marching around who are trying to promote Hamas, saying, you know, from the river to the sea, which is a threat to the Israeli people. That means wipe them out. They'll have everything from the river to the sea. Israel will be gone. Uh, supporting the Hamas terrorists that killed and raped and maimed babies, women, children, elderly people. Uh, 1,200 to 1,300 people. We still have hostages, including Americans, out there today in tunnels. It's been since October 7th of 2023, and there are still hostages. Where is the world screaming and hollering that demands Hamas release those people? Do you hear it? Do you hear the United Nations leaders standing up and saying, first of all, Hamas, give back those people right now? No, we don't, we don't hear any of that, do we? Isn't that strange that we don't hear that, but we hear, Israel, you better stop attacking Hamas. You're hurting people. You're hurting this and that. The Israelis are fighting for their life. They're surrounded by people who would kill them, who have expressed that they will kill them. And they're fighting for their life. And in the meantime, the world leaders are not screaming for those hostages who are being held against their will, probably being brutalized. Probably a lot of them are already deceased, unfortunately. How many have they found going through the tunnels? They found these hostages already dead. So where, where is the world screaming to let those hostages go? That should be the first thing the whole world should unite, unite on. You got a problem with Israel and you're going to have a, You want to talk about what you're going to. That's fine. You want to fight about the hostages are innocent people. And where is the world not demanding that Hamas and Iran, who controls Hamas, release those people immediately? I don't know. But that's a big problem, and we're not talking about it, which tells you how screwed up our world really is. All right, so this, this Claudine Gay, this 
leader, this principal of the school, she testified in front of Congress and she really could not answer questions appropriately because she didn't believe in the appropriate things. That's what it sounded like. So these kids are marching across the campus. They're scaring and threatening and intimidating any Jewish students. They are screaming for, they're saying that what Hamas did was good. Those people deserved it and this and that and the other thing. That's very intimidating in your school. Now in our colleges, don't we hear that there should be safe places that you can't say, you can't say one thing about somebody. You can't insinuate something about something because then they don't feel safe. And the school goes crazy to make sure there's safe spaces. There's an election and your person didn't win. Oh my God, you need a safe space and you need dogs to pet and you need to have, you know, food brought in. Well, here these students are being threatened with these marches and they ask these college leaders, um, do you think it follows your code of conduct to threaten the lives, to, to intimidate Jewish students? And they couldn't answer. Instead of going, yes, it absolutely does that. We don't stand for anything like that. We want our colleges to be safe for everyone. Everyone should feel safe. And we're going to do what we can to make sure those students feel safe. And we're going to stop protests that are calling for uh, the destruction and death of an entire people and wiping them out and genocide of a people. We're, we're going to stop that. We're not going to allow it one more minute. That is the appropriate answer. But that is not the answer that these leaders gave. Because these leaders are more progressive, more liberal. They believe in the whole DEI situation where basically whoever is perceived to be oppressed is the hero. And whoever is perceived to be the oppressor is the bad person. And therefore, whatever happens to the bad person is okay because we got to protect the oppressed. Now, Hamas is a terrorist group. We have to separate that from the people who live in the West Bank and then live in the Gaza Strip. Those are individual people, the Palestinian people. They are different than a terrorist organization. They deserve to live good, decent lives, free from violence, to raise their children in a safe environment and to be healthy. Hamas is a terrorist organization. They rape, brutalize, murder people, innocent people. They have to be stopped. Where's the call for them to surrender? Where's the worldwide call for Hamas to surrender? Because the war ends immediately. Immediately. Not another person in that area will be injured if Hamas says, okay, we surrender. We don't want to have the destruction of Israel. We're going to surrender. We're going to stop our fighting, put our weapons down, come out of the tunnels. Here's your hostages. Sorry. If they did that, it would be over immediately. Where's the worldwide call for that? Hamas, you're a terror organization. You're not a legitimate leadership of the people there. Now, they, they are voted in, which I guess that gives them some legitimacy. But if the people voted for them, you get what you vote for, right? So all of this that's going on is because of what Hamas has done. You can't blame the person who's punched in the nose when they fight back. Well, you, you ended up beating them up. Well, you shouldn't have thrown the first punch. That just makes common sense. But our world, again, we're screwed up. We don't see it the right way. Well, Claudine Gay... Uh, gave up her position. Dr. Gay, she gave up her position as the leader. But she she had to throw in the race card. You know, they're trying to get rid of me because I'm um, African-American woman. Well, I, I got to tell you, the only people that care about race and things like that anymore that I can see in the overwhelming majority are people on the left. People on the right don't care that she's an African-American woman and she's the president of Harvard. But that's what they're trying to lay it down on because they want to take away her responsibility in her answers. 
where she basically said, hey, Hamas is great. We're going to let them do what they want and too bad for the Jewish kids, which is the essence of her answer, which is why so, so many people were appalled and called for her to leave. Imagine if it was the other way around. Imagine if Jewish students and other students on campus were marching around saying, you know, kill the people of Gaza, kill the people of, uh, of the West Bank, wipe those people out, get rid of them. Could you imagine? Or any other group. Could you imagine if they went around saying things like that, racist things, or get rid of this group or get rid of that group? There's only a couple of groups you're allowed to say things that about like that, Christians and the Jewish people. Other than that, anybody else, there would be, the whole world would come down on that. There'd be no protest. There wouldn't be, all those students who did it would be expelled immediately. And this is what we're all seeing in real time. And this is what's disturbing to many people to see. So Dr. Gay finally stepped down for pressure and she has to throw at the race card. It's because I'm a black woman. People can't stand to see me in a position of power. Nobody cares anymore who you are. If you can do the job, that's your job. Good for you. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're black, brown, yellow, white. It doesn't matter who you are. Uh, purple people. Yeah, you could be orange. It doesn't matter who you are if you can actually do the work. Nobody, I don't, I don't see many people on the right that really care about that. Well, we can't have her in there because she's African-American. No, nobody thinks that. Uh, nobody that I've talked to. Now, I'm sure there are. There's always racists out there of all different kinds. But it's our friends on the left who are obsessed with race. And anything that somebody does, a person of color does something that it's wrong and they're called out for it, it's, it's, it's not because of what they did. It's because of their race. And that's just not true. That's just not true. And if anybody is doing anything because of her race, then they are wrong and they should be called out. Simple as that. So she steps down and says it's not. Well, what about the, the president of uh, Penn? I think it's Penn State. She had to step down as well. She stepped down. She was told to be, you know, her, the board said she had to go. Uh, but she was a white woman. So why did, they, why did they remove her if she's a white woman? Because the things she said were abhorrent. The fact that she didn't protect all of her students and maintain the atmosphere on the school to be a safe place where people can express themselves no matter what opinions they have. Right? That they're not intimidated and threatened with death and beatings and everything else. That's why she was removed. So any other argument uh, as far as Harvard is concerned is really just obfuscation and lies. Uh, she, was pr she resigned under pressure. Well, nobody fired her. The board wouldn't fire her, but she kept getting pressure from people that she should go. Well, she said and did horrible things. And as a leader, that's what happens sometimes. You know, that's how you're leading the organization and people didn't realize it. Then maybe you shouldn't be leading the organization no matter who you are. Right? Do you get it? Right? So that was one of those things. Now, here's a great guy, uh, the Surgeon General of the state of Florida, uh, Joseph Ladapo. I think that's how you say it, Ladapo. See, I try and get names right. You know, in the past, I didn't always have the names. I said, you know, this guy or that woman. Well, he's Dr. Joseph Ladapo, Surgeon General of the state of Florida. And he has really gone out on a limb to keep you safe if you live in the state of Florida. He has gone out and he has now made an official recommendation that uh, care, healthcare providers in the state of Florida, all over the state of Florida, in every level of healthcare, stop recommending the COVID-19 vaccines because they are harmful. They are not proven effective. We, you know, we've been talking about this for years. It was nice that we came up with a vaccine in a panic. We were scared to death and uh, the Trump administration fast-forwarded this 
uh, and here's an answer. It's going to stop this virus. You're not going to get it. You're not going to die from it. Everyone was in a panic. But once the facts started to come out and we saw how, how we, we were silenced uh, through the high tech and media and that's because they didn't want to talk about it, especially once Biden took it over and now he's, he's the king, he's going to save everybody. You were mandated to take these shots if you didn't. I remember uh, my kids going to college. They took the shot because they were told you can't come to school and there is no at-home school uh, once we're open. So if you don't take the shot, you can't come. And as a father, uh, I, was, I was really caught in a hard place. Uh, we didn't have all the facts we have now still. Uh, they were telling us that it doesn't stop you from getting COVID, doesn't stop you from passing it like they said, but it's not going to kill you. So basically, it's, it, was, it was useless, but you had to take it to conform to these laws and rules. So my kids took it. And then we, you know, over the course of time, we've now found out that young people are having heart problems. They're having uh, stroke problems. They're having all kinds of uh, blood problems. And a doctor the other day came out and said he's concerned about the long-term effects of blood cancers related to the mRNA vaccines. Now, I'm not a doctor. I don't know for sure, but I look at different voices. I hear different voices. And you say, well, what's the truth? I don't know. So I'm going to make a decision based on what I do know. I'm not going to take it. That should have been the uh, reality. Once we found out that it didn't stop you from spreading it to other people, that should have been the end of the conversation. If I choose not to take the vaccine and uh, I can get COVID and it could kill me, then that's a choice I made. The only argument I could have seen them making is that if it was still as deadly as the first round, the original round of COVID, which was very, very deadly, uh, especially to older people, people with lots of different uh, pre pre-existing conditions. But for younger people, it wasn't. They weren't dying from it. They were getting a cold. Older people with health conditions were, were certainly uh, affected very negatively. But the reality is, if it would have stopped the spread, absolutely, you could not give it to somebody if you took the vaccine. That's the only argument I could have seen that they could have possibly made. But it didn't do that. You could take the vaccine. You could still get it. You could still pass it on. You could st it didn't do anything. So basically, it was a cipher. Uh, they tell you, well, at least it'll, if, if you get it, you, you might not die from it if you took the vaccine. That might be true. That's what they, the statistics seem to see. But we've also seen uh, these different variants getting weaker and weaker as they go. I myself had COVID twice. Uh, I think I had it for two days each time or any symptoms for at least two days. But at the time, we had doctors who would prescribe medicine for that, you know, you know, the, the, the horse dewormer, you know, that's been used, ivermectin has been used for, for viral stuff for years uh, and uh, hydroxychloroquine. We took those two things. Kathleen had it too. And two days gone, all the symptoms gone, everything. So we don't know. We didn't get the truth. The truth is hidden from us on this for political reasons, probably from money, always follow the money. You know, who made money? They made billions of dollars. You know, our politicians are probably in it up to their necks with the, they bought stock before this came out. You can't sue the companies. So all it is is a cash train. But this Dr. Joseph Ladapo, the Surgeon General of Florida, has said all healthcare people in Florida should no longer recommend the uh, COVID vaccines because they're showing that they're deadly, that they have negative side effects for people, and they do not protect from anything. So I thought that was amazing. And he's an amazing man. You know what makes him amazing? His race? No. Uh, the school he went to? No. What makes him amazing is that he's professional. 
and he's thought things through and he's accomplished. Had nothing to do with anything else. He's a good and decent man and he's making a recommendation. Of course, the, the whole government's going crazy with him. How can you say a thing like that? In the face of the fact that it doesn't really work. Okay. So I covered him. See, I'm taking all these things off my list. I'm feeling better and better. Um, the border. Now, the borders, we're going to, something we're going to get into in the next couple of episodes. We're going to look at it a little closer. We're seeing concerns about human trafficking and the people being brutalized and the millions. And I think they said $32 million a month, the cartels, you know, the criminal drug cartels, the ones who are sending the drugs over that are killing 100,000 Americans a year. Uh, that are brutalizing the people along the way, selling people into human trafficking, slavery, all those people. Yeah, they're uh, they're making millions of dollars a year because of this open border. And the Biden administration says the border's secure. The border's totally secure. And then we see 302,000 people, illegal immigrants, cross the border and be dispersed throughout the United States in the month of December 2023 alone. Millions of people. That doesn't account for up to the 2 million gotaways that they know about, that they saw, but they couldn't catch, and how many more that they didn't see. They've got, now I think the number is 312 people on the terrorist watch list, people from communist China, people from um, communist uh, Cuba. We're seeing people coming from all over the world into our country, unregulated, unchecked, unvetted, and they're in communities across the country. Concern about this has nothing to do with hating anybody. It has to do with common sense. You don't know who's coming into your car. You just open your front door, let anybody walk in and take a bedroom in your house and start interacting with your family. No, you'd be out of your mind. You don't know who these people are. You don't know what they're all about. The mayor of New York the other day admitted that, well, some of the illegal uh, migrants that are here are committing crimes. But you know what? Americans commit crimes too. So if somebody was raped or murdered by an illegal immigrant, does that mean, well, they would have been raped or murdered by a regular American had that immigrant not been here? No, it means they were dead or victimized because someone was here who shouldn't have been here. They should have been vetted and cleared, right? All of these things are going on in our country. And as we go forward into this year, it's going to heat up. It's going to get crazy. And we're going to have to have some interesting thoughts. So remember, we'll be back soon. But be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. This is Lieutenant Joe saying, have a great day.